Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Greetings and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Apodaca. How are you doing uh, this fine morning, Nathan? Oh, I'm doing great, Clinton. How about yourself? Uh, doing not too bad. So a little bit of personal news. The article that I've written with Daniel Roger and Bruce Blackshaw has been published. It appears in the March 2018 edition of Bioethics. The topic of that article is infanticide. We're responding to a philosopher who critiqued the arguments of Christopher Kayser in his book, The Ethics of Abortion. Uh, I just received a notice today that, that it's been published, and it's going to appear in the March 2018 edition of Bioethics. And I believe you can pick up a digital copy on the website, but I haven't yet figured out how to order a physical copy of it. So I've got that going on, uh, which you know, is pretty exciting. So as soon as I get that figured out, how to order a physical copy, I'll be sure and uh, let everyone know. Do you know if you need to have a subscription to the article or have an academic uh, library account to access it? You know, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I believe that a, a library, especially a library at a, um, at a university, would probably have a way to access it. Uh, I don't know if you actually have to be a member or not to access it. This is new ground for me as far as publishing. So. Well, congrats on that. Oh, thanks. So today on a very special episode of uh, Pro-Life Thinking, the guest that we have uh, joining us today is Nancy Piercy. Now, Nancy is a two-time winner of the ECPA Gold Medallion Award. Nancy R. Piercy has been hailed in The Economist as, quote, America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual, end quote. A best-selling author and speaker who serves as professor of apologetics and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University, Piercy is also editor-at-large of the Piercy Report and a fellow at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. Previous positions include visiting scholar at Biola University's Tory Honors Institute, professor of worldview studies at Cairn University, and the Francis A. Schaefer Scholar at the World Journalism Institute. She is co-author with Chuck Colson of How Now Shall We Live and author of the 2005 ECPA Gold Medallion Award winner Total Truth, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and now with the book that we're going to talk about today, Love Thy Body. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. We're glad, well, we're to, have glad you. to have you. 
Yeah, is there, is there an echo in here? Yeah, it's great to have you uh, on the show with us. Now, we're recording the show live, and so if you're listening in and you have a question for Nancy, you can call in at 646-668-8597. Once again, the number you can call in at is 646-668-8597. Now, uh, the reason that we have Nancy on the show is so that we can discuss her recent book, Love by Body, which Nathan and I were both on the uh, pre-release. What, 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 what was it? That would be the launch team to help uh, get the book uh, publicized and uh, help market it a little bit uh, just before it hit the bookshelves and uh, bookstores nationwide. And honestly, I think it has done a really well, a really good job. I'm part of my grammar. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Launch team. That's the uh, that's the phrase that I was I was looking for. Uh, yeah. So we were both on the launch team for it, and it's a really excellent book. And you know, we we don't just want to promote it you know we, we think it would it would definitely be a good idea for anyone listening in here to go order this book read it study it don't just read it once but actually study it and commit it to memory commit it to well to your worldview so yeah so we don't want to just promote it but we, we wanted to have the author come on the book and talk about it herself so you can get a little bit more of it of an idea of what the, the book is about from the author's own words so the first question that i always like to ask my guests to start off with is how did you come to be pro-life, uh, Nancy? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I I went through several years as an agnostic. We have to go back. We have to go back to the beginning here. Uh, I was raised in a, in a in a Christian home, but halfway through high school, um, I gave up my religious upbringing. I, I I simply had questions about how do we know that it's true? How do we know it's true? I was going to a secular um, public high school. Um, all my textbooks were secular. All my professors were secular. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to know how, as Christians, can we know that this is true? And I couldn't get any answers. Um, I, uh, I talked to a Christian college professor, and I said, why are you a Christian? He said, works for me. And I thought, that's it? <laughs> And I even had a chance to talk to a, a Christian seminary dean. And I thought, I'll get an answer from him. And all right. he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. So I decided Christianity must not have any answers. And it seemed to me a matter of intellectual honesty. To If you don't have reasons for something, you can't really say you believe it, whether it's Christianity or anything. So I very consciously rejected my Christian upbringing and... Um, in about middle, middle way through high school, and started uh, on a conscious search for truth. You know, how do I? I guess it's up to me. I thought to find out what is the true view. What is, you know, what is the meaning to life? What is there a God? Isn't there a God? What is the foundation for ethics? I, and I pretty rapidly slid into moral relativism and skepticism and uh, physical determinism, which is complex biochemical machines anyway, and. Um, I also was very pro, pro-abortion, um, very liberal on many of my views. I didn't see good arguments on the pro-life side either. Again, I, you know, I was driven by the fact that I could not find good arguments back then. So it was. Uh, I spent several years as an agnostic before becoming a Christian again at Labrie, which is the ministry of Francis Schaeffer in Switzerland. I was going to school in Germany at the time, and through strange circumstances, I ended up in Switzerland and encountered for the first time Christian apologetics, that is, 
you know, rational arguments for Christianity, reasons and evidence. I just never encountered that. I had no idea that you could give um, rational, well-thought-out reasons for the truth of Christianity. So I didn't become a Christian right away. It took a year and a half. <laughs> it took a while. It took two, it took two visits to Labrie, but and it was. I still didn't become pro-life though. I was still not pro-life. I I went back. I went to seminary. I got married. I had a kid. And at that time, Francis Schaeffer did his series. Do you remember he did a series, a film and lecture series, on the bioethical issues? And, oh yeah. And her. How not, uh, whatever happened to the human race hmm. was the name of it. And I went okay. to hear him speak, and that's when I finally became pro-life. So it took a long, complex journey before I really was convinced that an intellectual case could be made for pro-life. So was that journey then the catalyst for your writing your book, Total Truth? Um, not exactly, because uh, that, that was several years later. Um, okay. Yeah, it it was not um it was it was not until I'd already written Soul of Science and I'd already written with Chuck Colson how how now she live. So it was, you know, it was down the pike aways. Okay. Yeah, so uh Nathan and I live uh, pretty separated from each other, so it's kind of difficult to uh you know, communicate uh back and forth, but I'll I'll go ahead and let Nathan um kind of handle the the bulk of the of the interview and I'll I'll chime in with with questions occasionally. Um, so, Nathan, go ahead and take the lead on this here. Well, perfect. Well, just to kind of start off, both me and Clinton still live in the People's Republic of California. But uh, aside right. from that, for anybody who doesn't, who is not from California or has never been to California, California has gotten to be a little bit ridiculous, especially, unfortunately, with the pro-abortion movement. We have right now in the state of California, uh, SB 320, a bill being pushed through the California legislature to provide the RU486 abortion pill on all state college campuses. So the CSU system, the UC system, and California community colleges. And so that's one reason why I think this book is so important is because not just even the abortion issue, but the sexual revolution is still going full swing on the college campus. And I think your book, Professor Piercy, does a really good job of taking it on and showing that, you know, the Christian worldview, we're not just a bunch of prudes running around to put it mildly, um, we actually have a very solid view of the human body, human nature, and the things that come with that. So bioethical issues, issues of human sexuality, gender issues. And also you have a chapter in here talking about uh, social contract theory, which uh, I have found very helpful so far. So I'm just kind of curious, what was your basis for putting the book together? I mean, what kind of got you on the topic uh, covered in the book, wanting to write on them and talk about worldview, talk about the worldview issues behind the sexual revolution or bioethics. Oh, well, you, you know, you mentioned my earlier book, uh, Total Truth, and there is a connection between Total Truth and this book, Love Thy Body, because uh, Total Truth deals with the fact that there's been a split in our very concept of truth itself. Cultures have traditionally thought that there was, you know, there is a natural order, and there are truths about the natural order, and there are moral truths, but that the two form a coherent, consistent system of truth, so that you have a single worldview that describes all of reality. With the rise of modern science, 
many people began to say, no, there's only one kind of truth. The only reliable form of knowledge is empirical facts, what's scientifically knowable. And what did that mean for things like uh, theology and morality? Well, they were not considered truths anymore. They were reduced to private subjective preferences, what works for you, you know, your personal values. In fact, it's often called the fact-value split. And it's the idea that the only reliable knowledge we have is the realm of facts and that values now are reduced to merely personal opinion. And sometimes um, uh, philosophers will use the imagery of two stories in a building. And so they'll say in the lower story is objective knowledge, and that's scientific, that's rational, that's empirical. And then they throw up into the upper story anything that cannot be known by science, whatever cannot be stuffed into a test tube and studied under a microscope. Those are the things we can't really have any valid knowledge of. And so this was this is one of the greatest barriers today to presenting Christianity as truth, because people no longer have a notion of truth when they're talking about things like theology and morality. And this was, in fact, I mentioned my own my own former days as an agnostic. Before, um, when I went to Labrie, Francis Schaeffer's um, residential ministry study center, um, I, you know, I was a complete relativist. So I had to first grapple with, is there any such thing as truth before I could even consider whether Christianity was true? And so that's the case today. Because of this two-story view of truth, um, it's become much harder for Christians to present their truth claims. Then I found that if your concept of truth is split, obviously that's going to affect every other field, every other area. So, for example, in my book, Saving Leonardo, I show how the arts divided into kind of an upper lower story, into, um, in, into two, two basic streams. And in Love Thy Body, I show how ethical issues are affected by the split, how um, ethical issues, in, in a sense, um, have, have come to see that they've divided the human being into an upper and a lower story. They've said, okay, on the, on the one hand, we're biological organisms, organisms knowable by science. On the other hand, we're persons who, uh, who experience ourselves in almost a postmodern sense. If I can be whatever I want to be, you know, my choice is all that matters. And so it's, it, I show how that applies to all of these ethical issues from abortion, assisted suicide, homosexuality, transgenderism, and so on. It turns out that they all rest on this divided concept of the human being. You definitely see that, especially in the arguments presented by pro-choice philosophers like Marianne Warren or Michael Tooley. They definitely take that two-story view to an extreme. You have Marianne Warren. She sets up her criteria for personhood and says that if the unborn doesn't meet these criteria, then it's not a person and we may kill it. And other people, some philosophers now, like Clinton mentioned, responding to arguments in favor of infanticide are starting to carry it out to its logical conclusions is, you know, there's no difference between the human being in the womb and out of the womb. Well, if it's not a person in the womb, it's not going to be a person out of the womb. So carrying it over into the infanticide arguments, you see that it's become very much, well, we value the person, we value their feelings and experiences. I mean, you look at the protests going on on the college campus today, what's the first thing you hear from a secular sociologist or criminologist or anthropologist? Well, we have to value people's experiences. 
yeah, that's good, but it's the person that's experiencing those things. It's both um, their body and their mind, not just one or the other. And so it definitely, I think you do a good job of really showing where that two-story dichotomy comes into view, especially with abortion and uh, euthanasia. I like how you also, in the book, you talk about Rene Descartes and his, his view, uh, what some philosophers have called Cartesian dualism. Uh, I know you've talked about that actually in some of, in a couple of your previous books, um, how the Enlightenment really started to bring out this two-story view of the human person and of religion and ethics. Is that definitely something that you see happening, that the Enlightenment views is what kind of brought us to where we're at now? Yes. In, in Lovely Body, I show the history of it. Um, but uh, ironically, just last night in my graduate class, we went through Peter Singer's arguments for, uh, for abortion. So let's, let's unpack that two-story view of the human being when it comes to abortion. Most people, uh, including most of my students last night, uh, tend to think that the argument is still on the level of um, we have to help people see that the fetus is a human being. Right? If, if, they, if they realize it's human life, then they will understand that it, it, it needs to be legally protected. But as you know, Nathan, the, um, that's not where the debate is these days. People, people yeah. like Peter Singer have moved on. They've said, well, okay, let's acknowledge that the fetus is human. The data from genetics and DNA is just too strong. Nobody, no professional bioethicist today denies that the fetus is human from conception. But what they've said is, let's make a distinction. Let's say not all humans are persons, that it takes, it takes something beyond being a member of the, of the human race to qualify for personhood. For personhood, you have to have certain mental capacities. You have to have a certain needle certain level of neocortical functioning. And, and this is, like you said, it, it stems back to Descartes' body versus mind. Essentially, they're saying, as long as the fetus is just a biological organism, just human, or we might say just a body, then it can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be used for research. It can be tinkered with genetically. It can be harvested for organs. Uh, picked through for sellable parts, as Planned Parenthood does, and, and then disposed of with the other medical waste. So it has no moral standing and no right to legal protection. Instead, the fetus has to earn the right to personhood by developing a certain level of self-awareness, consciousness, uh, sense of the future even for, for people like Peter Singer. If you don't have a sense of the future yet, you're not a person. And so to qualify as a person, you need these additional uh, these additional capabilities. So in a sense, you see the two-story dualism there. You're a human being on, on one, on the, in the lower story, what can be known scientifically, but you're not a person until you have certain mental capacities, uh, and, and then you have moral standing, then you have a right to legal protection. And so this is actually called personhood theory. And you can see how it's related to the fact-value split because being biologically human is a scientific fact. That's the lower story. But to be a person is an ethical concept defined by what we value. So that's in the upper story. Now, what we need to help people see, number one, is that this is a very fractured, fragmented, dualistic view of the human person. And it, 
it alienates people from their from their own bodies. It gives them a sense that you are not you until you have you know until you have a functioning mind. Um, and the second thing is nobody can actually define personhood because it has no objective basis, and certainly has no scientific basis. Uh, the the change from being just a piece of matter that can be killed for any reason or no reason, uh, and at some later point you become a person with an inviolable right to life, and it would be a crime to kill you. This is an immense transformation. You ought to be able to pinpoint it, identify it at some at some point in, in fetal development, and of course we can't. Fetal development is completely gradual. There's, there's no momentous change like that, no transformative point that can be detected scientifically. So the definition of personhood is private, it's subjective, it's arbitrary, just like the other personal values. Essentially, it's, it's, it's whatever the bioethicist values. Every bioethicist draws the line at a different place. You definitely see that in the literature. You have Marianne Warren. She draws the line before birth. Michael Tooley and Peter Singer draw it sometime after birth. You definitely well, see that happen. With Marianne Warren, uh, it's a little bit of a of a different story because she tries to draw the line before birth, but her arguments justify infanticide, and she tries to weasel her way out of it a little bit in a postscript that she wrote uh, after she had faced those critiques. So, you know, Warren tries to draw it before birth because she's bothered by infanticide, but her arguments actually would justify infanticide as well. Right. Yeah, and you know, I mean, you see that being the logical conclusion. I mean, when we had a Dr. Chris Kaser on, we talked about the infanticide arguments, mm-hmm. uh, such as the recent, well, infamous piece by uh, Jubilini and Minerva, uh, Why Should the Baby Live? You start to see those arguments are becoming more and more commonplace, unfortunately, among philosophers. And I think that's definitely where the materialist view inevitably leads. Something else, though, uh, regarding the two-story dualistic view of the human person and ethics is moral relativism comes up. So uh, having conversations with coworkers a couple of days ago, uh, they were saying, they go, well, you know, your pro-life views are fine for you, but you can't legislate them at all. Basically, they're true for me, but not for them. And so, again, you see that two-story view is they'll accept the science because science is objective and it's unchanging whether we like it or not. Gravity exists whether we like it or not. But morals are relative to people and cultures. Is that something you've also found, uh, Professor Piercy, in the bioethics literature or talking with students at all? Oh, absolutely. Because, again, to use the modern term, those are values. See, as Christians, we sometimes use the word values, right? We talk about defending Christian values. And we don't realize we're shooting ourselves in the foot because the term values actually came from, from the philosopher Immanuel Kant. And Kant specifically gave it a relativistic definition. The very meaning of values means whatever you value. So it comes from the it comes from a verb, whatever you value. And so it's very important for us not to use the term values when we are talking about Christian moral truths. That's how we should talk about them, by the way, is moral truths, not personal values. Because when we com- we have to realize the secular world has developed in a sense, a different language. Um, they use English words still, but they mean something different by them. And one of the problems is that Christians are so uh, locked inside their evangelical subculture often that they don't even realize that the language has changed and that it means something different. 
and that if we're going to be good communicators, we have to learn the language of the people around us. We have to be like a missionary. We have to take that seriously, that just as a missionary has to learn the language of the people he's talking to, by the same token, Christians, even when they're speaking to other English speakers, have to recognize that they, they think differently, they have different thought forms, and they put different definitions to some of the same words. And if we don't know that, we will be talking right past them. So we come up to them and say, you know, we want to defend our Christian values. What do they hear us saying? They hear us saying, we want to impose our personal preferences on you, because that's what values are to them. And so that's why, of course, they would resist it, because nobody should impose their personal preferences on somebody else. You know, if I like chocolate and you like vanilla, I shouldn't say, no, 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 you must like chocolate. That, you know, that, that would be a personal imposition. That would not be right. And so as long as we are not clarifying what we mean by truth, that there are such things as moral truths, then our culture will take what we say and misinterpret it. We will be arguing for, for objective truths, and they will think we're pushing our personal preference on them. I saw that. I remember back here in California when the debate over same-sex marriage was going on about actually 10 years ago now. I remember uh, a gentleman was being interviewed on the news, and he was saying, he goes, you know, you need to keep your values and convictions to yourselves they're yours and yours alone and definitely seeing that happen in fact actually talking to people about christianity a lot of people assume that religious truths claims work the same way uh, i was talking with a coworker one day and uh she saw me actually reading a book on marriage uh marriage and courtship and she we got to talking about um going to church and she said she goes well I think church is good for some people. I've just never really been um, interested in it. I got to thinking, I'm going, well, you know, I think I'm, we're having a conversation in two different languages here is I'm saying that this is an objective truth that God exists. And I'm reading uh, Francis Schaeffer's book right now. He is there and he is not silent. I think that's the best way to summarize Christianity. But the person I was talking to was thinking it was more like kind of like a social club. I mean, some of us might go and join a fraternity or something, but no fraternity is really better than another or a social club or a sports club. And so I think that's definitely, it's, come, it's coming full circle uh, within society today. So just kind of moving on. I mean, uh, we did want to talk, have this episode on Valentine's Day uh, because these issues do come up around this time of year, especially on the college campus with just how sexualized the campus culture has gotten. Uh, we haven't really talked so much on the podcast about sexual ethics, but they do carry over into the pro-life issue because you have, uh, there are pro-life groups who still want to hold to the sexual revolution. I have noticed, uh, I know there's one small pro-life group. It's more of a secular group, but they still promote uh, birth control and um, contraceptives along with the pro-life message and saying that we can have both. Whereas a lot of groups like Catholic pro-life groups will say, no, one leads to the other, they're, they're interconnected. So I'm just kind of curious what your, um, kind of moving over to that side, the sexual revolution side, where you see that two-story view showing up and some ways to answer it. Yeah, I'm glad you were uh, going that way, especially on Valentine's Day, because it's a good example of how that uh, two-story view of the human being um, applies to areas where we might not have thought of it that way. Um, and not only is it a two-story view, but it, it's always denigrating the lower story. It's always saying 
the body is less important. I mean, I mean, we've talked about abortion, but what what are they saying? They're saying as long as it's merely human, it has no value, it has no dignity. You know, as long as it's just a body and not a person, it has no value or dignity, and we we have no no reason to protect it. Well, look at the hookup culture. What is the hookup culture saying? It also denigrates the body. The hookup culture says uh, the the rules of the game are. No love, no relationship, no commitment. It's just a matter of connecting on a physical level, connecting our bodies, but that, that is, there's no necessary connection in terms of the, the whole person. There's no love, there's no commitment. Um, and in, um, in my book, Love Thy Body, I quote, I quote some very poignant quotes from college students. Um, one college student named Alicia said, Hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn off everything except your body. You make yourself emotionally invulnerable. Or another student said, um, it's body first, personality second. So what are these students saying? They're saying the hookup culture treats sexuality as purely physical, cut off from the whole person. And some people may think that this gives sex too much importance, but in reality, it gives sex too little importance because it rests on the idea that the body is just a product of blind material forces and is therefore nothing but a collection of atoms and cells and tissues, no different from any other chance configuration of matter. And so therefore, it has no higher meaning or dignity than any other chance configuration of matter there was an, uh, an article in Rolling Stone magazine that quoted uh, a young man who said, sex is just a piece of body touching another piece of body. It is existentially meaningless. Well, no wonder people keep grabbing for more and more sexual experiences but enjoying less real fulfillment because people are trying to live out a materialist worldview that doesn't fit who they are. I quote a researcher, her name is Donna Freitas, and she interviewed hundreds of college students. And she found out that privately they will admit they find their meaningless sexual encounters very disappointing, that they feel hurt and lonely, that they wish they knew how to create a genuine relationship in which they're known and loved as whole persons. So no wonder... It's leaving behind a trail of wounded people. People are trying to live out a worldview that does not fit who they are, that says that basically they can cut off the lower story, just the body, and relate physically and, and, and be emotionally disconnected. It doesn't fit who they really are, and many people are really suffering under that view. Once again, we are live with Nancy Piercy talking about her book, Love Thy Body. If you have a question for Nancy, you can call in at 646-668-8597. Once again, the number is 646-668-8597. If we don't get any callers, then we'll just continue uh, with our, our questions for Nancy Piercy here. A question that I had is that, especially on your in your chapter when you talk about abortion, uh, you talk about how Christianity has always taught a high view of women. And this is a point that many secularists in our culture would take issue with, especially as it relates to abortion. They believe that Christians just hate sex and want to control women's bodies. And obviously, uh, you don't see it that way. How would you respond to someone who has that kind of criticism? 
Well, in abortion culture, historically, you can look at cultures that practice abortion. And an abortion culture is one that does not treat women with respect. It does not treat women's biological ability to gestate and bear children as a wonderful thing, as a capacity that should be cherished, cherished and protected. Instead, it treats women's biological abilities as, as a liability, as a disadvantage, as a disability, something that you should be suppressing with toxic chemicals. Um, you know, you, you realize that hormonal birth control is classified by the World Health Organization as a carcinogen, a class one carcinogen, which means causing cancer. Uh, they think that um, it's you, you should be um, it's something that you should be combating with with deadly devices to kill the to kill the life within her. So you know, even when I was an agnostic, I did not think morality was uh, excuse me, I did not think abortion was immoral. I, I had no problem with that, but I did sense that it was demeaning to women. You know, even as an agnostic, I thought this is not. This is not treating women's natural abilities with respect. In fact, I joined a group called Pro-Life Feminism. You, you know that group, right? Pro-Life Feminists? Uh, there are several yeah. groups now. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I thought, okay, I'm a feminist, but I, I, can't, I cannot accept abortion, not morally, but because of my high view of women, that I didn't believe. It, to me, it seemed as a, as a violence against women's natural capacities. And so I think it's interesting that even as an agnostic, before I had any moral problems with abortion, I did see that it was disrespectful to women. You know, I've actually seen some feminist thinkers. There's actually a growing uh, pro-life feminist uh, movement, groups like New Wave Feminists and Feminists for Life. And they actually do make that argument is they will say that our culture has kind of, in a sense, uh, tried to make women behave and function like men instead of endorsing and valuing a unique gift that women have. Um, in fact, actually, it was your book, uh, Total Truth, a uh, section in there about women and the Christian church talking about how in modern day, I remember in Total Truth, you were telling your story about going through seminary and getting ready to have your first child and saying, hey, why do I need to choose between the two of them? And I think that's something that often gets overlooked unfortunately, is that the society has kind of tried to tell women to abandon what the gift that God has given them and the way they are naturally inclined to carry on a child. Right, and I say that in Love Thy Body as well, although I don't have a whole chapter on it like I do in yeah. Total Truth. But I say as well um, that our our entire educational system, if you're, if you're trying to get higher education, and our entire um, corporate life, is has been set up around someone who's a, a man who can function essentially as a single man because his wife is at home taking care of the home and the kids and 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 all of his personal life is being essentially managed by his wife and he can function in the workplace as though he were single well as a result when women are now entering the workplace and getting higher education and much higher numbers than they used to they're trying to fit into a pattern that was established at an earlier age when men, it was built around single men. And that is one of the reasons that women often feel as though they have to, they have to resort to toxic chemicals, toxic chemicals that are birth control. Um, they, 
they, and of course, all contraceptives have a failure rate. So then they resort to abortion as a backup and to avoid being derailed from their educational or career path, they will often, are much more likely to be drawn into the hookup culture because you want casual affairs without any kind of emotional commitment because uh, you don't want to get slowed down. <laughs> and when you're finally established in your career and finally ready to have a family, Many women, it's, it's late enough in their life that their fertility has declined, and sometimes it's been damaged by sexually transmitted diseases they picked up along the way, or it's been damaged by the abortions that they had. And so as a result, they're not able to have the families they want. And then they have to submit to very expensive and often disappointing fertility treatments. And so I say, is this pro-woman? This is not pro-woman. This is, this is, if we were pro-woman, we would go back and rethink the structure of our career paths and our education paths and say, wait a minute, how can we redesign them so that they are supportive to both men and women who want to have families when it's biologically optimal, which is much younger than today, when it's biologically optimal so that both men and women can be supported in their desire to do both, you know, both want, uh, both men and women want a productive, fulfilling life, uh, um, work life, and they both want fulfilling family life. So instead of adapting our, instead of adapting our bodies, our biology, to the university and to the marketplace, we should respect our bodies enough to demand that the university and the marketplace adapt to us and to our biology. And I think that is a view that sits really well within the Christian worldview. I mean, the Christian worldview holds that men and both men and women were created in the image of God. And so since our bodies are part of that, then we're kind of, in a sense, doing ourselves a favor and respecting the fact that we do bear God's image, as opposed to the materialist worldview that holds that well, really, human beings are just a result of lucky chemical accidents, nothing more, no purpose for why we exist. And I think that you can definitely see, I mean, just the rate of brokenness on the college campus. And unfortunately, I think we're going to really be seeing the ramifications of that um, in the coming years. In fact, I actually just read an article today on campus reform that there are college students who are pushing for a return to traditional dating and courting on the college campus by multiple schools. I think, if I'm not mistaken, Notre Dame University, uh, I think Purdue University had these, where as a counter to the sex week that is pushed on the schools. I mean, I remember my transfer orientation at CSU San Marcos. We had two speakers get up and talk about, well, here's how you have to have consensual sex, make sure you get an agreement, here's the rules you have to follow. And I got to thinking about it, I'm going, well, there's a bit of a contradiction here in thinking. If sex is no big deal, then sexual assault really shouldn't be such a big deal. But the fact that we're so horrified by, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins or the sexual abuse going on in the media or politics shows that there really is something more going on there. It's more than just our bodies that are involved. It's us that's involved. Well, and and um, and that we should have a higher view of our body. I mean, it's clear. Yeah. The protests against Harvey Weinstein make it clear that when your body is assaulted, it's not just your body, that your body, it's your personhood that's assaulted. Your body and your personhood are inseparable, that 
yeah, you can't just be involved with somebody physically, that the whole person is involved. And you, you see, ultimately our view of our body rests on our view of nature. You know, ethics ethics rest on your view of the body, and your view of the body rests on nature. And the secular ethic rests on our Darwinian worldview, an evolutionary worldview, that says that, the, that nature is a product of blind, undirected forces, and therefore the body is just a physical organism driven by physical urges and instincts. So as a result, it has a very low view of the body, and the idea is the body has no higher purpose or dignity, and you can do with it whatever you want. And this, and this is what's underlying all of these issues that we're talking about. Um, to, to pick up one maybe that is particularly controversial, um, let's talk about how this affects homosexuality. Many people are afraid that you, we can't talk about homosexuality because you'll come, you'll come across as negative and judgmental. But what we have to help people to see is that, no, the homosexual narrative itself rests on a negative view of the body because, after all, no one really denies that on the level of biology, uh, physiology, anatomy, and so on, males and females are counterparts to one another that that's just the way the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. So when someone adopts a same-sex same sex identity, they're contradicting that design. And implicitly they are saying, why should my body inform my psychological identity? Why should my bi- biological sex as male or female have any say in my moral choices? So this is... Re- the profoundly disrespectful view of the body, and it creates an inner conflict between biological identity and psychological identity. It leads to a kind of inner fragmentation and self-alienation. And so, uh, in fact, I'm reading a book right now. It's a, it's a philosophical um, defense of, of transgenderism. And, she's, and the author says again and again, yet there's a disjunction between your biological sex or a mismatch is, a, is one of their favorite terms, a mismatch between your biology and your gender or your sexual orientation. And, and to come back to what you were saying earlier, so what is the Christian answer? The Christian answer is you should love your body, to take the title of my book. You should love your body. Um, I tell a lot of personal stories in my book uh, to help flesh out the ideas. And actually one of my favorite is the one that's at the beginning of the chapter on homosexuality. And it's about a young man named Sean who was exclusively attracted to other men, but now he is married and has three children. So what changed? Well, he became a Christian, and he said, I began to, I began, decided I would not, not base my identity on my sexual feelings, but I would base my identity on the fact that God had made me biologically male, that feelings are relatively superficial, they can change, they often do, but my, by my biological identity as male is, empirical, is an empirical fact that doesn't change, and that my, my goal should not be to change my feelings directly, which does not usually work, but I would focus on my body as a good gift from God, and I would, I would accept it as from the hand of God. And that's really the, the, the worldview question at the bottom of all of these issues. Um, do we accept the creator 
the, that our creative differentiation as male and female is a good thing, or do we reject it? Do we affirm the goodness of creation, or do we deny it? I think you do a really good job of explaining that. And I think, and even for people who might be listening to this and may not be in agreement with what we're saying or be following the Christian worldview, I would really encourage them to pick up your book and read through the section that you have on homosexuality and transgenderism. Because I think a lot of people, they automatically rule out the idea that Christians have anything meaningful to say, that we're all about condemning people. And unfortunately, I have actually met people who were Christians who thought that was the way they were supposed to be. I was talking to a student at a community college, and he was and this was his words, not mine. He was saying, he goes, you know, I absolutely hate homosexuals. And I looked at him and I go, why? You don't, the Bible does not teach that. And Christ says that we're all fallen, that we all need him. And I think your section in the book is really insightful on this. The view that you're promoting is that we were created as image bearers of God. And so as a result, um, people who may struggle with these things, they're also image bearers and they deserve our love and respect uh, just as much for the kind of hum- for the human being that they are, and I like how you bring up uh, Sam Albury's story. Uh, he spoke actually at my church a few years ago, a uh, really great event, and uh, Rosaria Butterfield's story about struggling with this issue but being loved by their Christian community. And I think that is definitely something that is needed today, and people need to at least know that that's what's that's really the first answer, but it's also Truth goes hand in hand with love as a result. And so that is really, I think, a good example of where we should be going. Just to kind of move on a little bit, uh, since we're starting to run out of time, I uh, wanted to talk about uh, your last chapter on social contracts, um, because that seems to tie in a lot with these issues. So you talk about the bodily autonomy view of personhood. So like Judith Jarvis Thompson's violinist argument where she says that unplanned pregnancy, it's like waking up connected to a stranger who needs you to survive. Do you have to stay connected to them? You took a ta- um, a different path than I was expecting on that as you talked about. That stems from social contract philosophy is that all of our relationships are just based on consent and agreement with the people around us. And you show how that has damaged a lot of relationships like marriage and the parent-child relationship. Yeah, um, because we are talking about biology and the body, and it plays into politics like this. A, a free society was, is one that has pre-political rights. Pre-political rights means that these are rights you have uh, just in yourself, intrinsically. The state does not create them. The state merely recognizes them. And it turns out that many of our pre-political rights are based on biology. And so when we dismiss biology as not being important, we are losing our pre-political rights. So let's take abortion, for example. Life used to be a pre-political right. It's something you had just because you're biologically part of the human race. But the only way the state could legalize abortion was to rule that some people who are biologically human do not qualify as persons with the right to legal protection. So what does that mean? That means being human is no longer the basis for human rights. Instead, the state is claiming the authority to decide, without regard to biology, who has a legal right to, lo- to, to live. 
Oh, I take marriage. It used to be that marriage was a pre-political right. The state did not create it. The state did not define it. It was based on the biological fact of reproduction. But the only way the state could treat same-sex couples the same as opposite couples was to redefine marriage as a purely emotional commitment, which is what the Supreme Court did in its Obergefell decision that legalized same-sex marriage. So the state has claimed the right to, to, to define without any regard to biology, which relationships qualify legally as marriage. Or it used to be that your gender followed metaphysically on your biological sex. But the only way the law can treat a trans woman, that is someone born male, the same as a biological woman, is to redefine gender without regard to biology. And that's why we're now seeing laws and policies that are being imposed telling us who we must haul she she or he. And uh, I've been reading some same-sex advocates, especially lawyers, and they say the next step is parenthood. Because in a same-sex couple, at least one parent is not biologically related to any children that they have. So the only way the state can treat same-sex parents the same as opposite parents is to is to redefine parenthood with, without regard to biology. But what that means is you will be your child's parent only by permission of the state. So you see, in all of these cases, the state is dismissing biological realities, biological connections, uh, like between parent and child, and substituting legal fiat. And it's sold to the public, of course, as a way of expanding choice. But in reality, they are reducing pre-political rights to legal rights, and what the state gives, the state can take away. And so the secular ethic is actually setting up up for control by an all-powerful political state. That's the end game, and that's what people need to realize is at stake in these issues. We're actually coming up now to the uh, pretty close to the end of our time together. Where can people find you online, Nancy? I have a website, nancypiercy.com, and by the way, Piercy is P-E-A-R-C-E-Y. It's got an extra E in there that people sometimes miss. So yeah, uh, nancypiercy.com or the Piercy yeah. Report. Yeah, I used to uh, miss that extra E also, so it took me a little while to get used <laughs> to writing that in there. Because, you know, it, it's not symmetrical because your first name is spelled N-A-N-C-Y with no E. Yeah, well, I married into the last name, so. <laughs> oh, okay, that, that, that makes sense. Yeah, so no, we can blame we, your we for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, we mentioned a number of your books. Uh, are there any other websites or books or anything you'd like to mention? Well, yeah, thanks for mentioning in my books. Um, the uh, the latest one, the new one, of course, is Love Thy Body, and it does build, as you noted, on my earlier book, Total Truth, and there's a follow-up to that called Finding Truth. My uh I mentioned Saving Leonardo because that shows how the divided concept of truth affected art, literature, music, and so on. And so that's kind of a fun book because it, it brings the creative side in. It brings the, the ideas and, and the arts together. And then my first book actually was uh, The Soul of Science. That lays the groundwork for understanding the scientific worldview because that affects all of these. Notice how all of these are affected by a scientific understanding of human life. It if, if you don't understand science, you really don't understand modern culture. So it all, all together, they, they, they're all sort of interrelated, 
And if you pick up one, I hope you pick up some of the others. Yeah, well, I'm a musician myself, so it sounds like Saving Leonardo would probably be right up my alley. Great. Yeah, I guess, what do you uh, play? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm classically trained. Uh, I'm a clarinetist, and uh, I am yeah. also a pianist. Uh, I've, I've done some classical music with piano, but I mainly play more contemporary styles. Uh, I play, or I lead the uh, contemporary band at my church on Sunday mornings, and I play in various classic rock tribute bands around town. So the clarinet I still do classically, and uh, piano slash keyboard is more modern contemporary styles. Well, if you read Saving Leonardo, contact me and I will send you a digital study guide because uh, it has links. You can't put musical links in a book very easily. So what I did is I made a study guide with lots of links to additional examples, especially musical examples. Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Something else I was just going to add is your book, Finding Truth, was uh, probably one of the best books I've read since I got to the university. I mean, Right now, I'm taking classes, finishing my bachelor's degree through Liberty University, so definitely getting a solid Christian worldview introduction there, reading a lot of Francis Schaeffer's works and actually some of your works. Um, Your book, Total Truth, is featured in some of the curriculum, but when I got to the secular university and taking sociology classes, your book, Finding Truth, really uh, was an assist to me in helping think through the ideas that were being promoted out there. Because um, you took the same task that you did with Love Thy Body. You talked about the worldviews behind a lot of the issues that are talked about on campus and then how to kind of question them and then break them down a little bit. And what I think is exciting about Finding Truth um, is that it shows that all of the arguments that, that apologists and philosophers and other thinkers use, um, we kind of treat these arguments as if they're just sort of floating in the philosophical ether just available for us to use, and I show that they are actually grounded in a biblical worldview. Even the arguments we use are grounded ultimately in, in Romans 1. When, when Paul makes the arguments, he, he um, makes the case for God from, from general revelation, and I show how they all root back into Romans 1. And uh, to me, that was exciting because uh, it shows that there's a lot more going on in Romans 1 than, than most people realize. Well, yeah, I just wanted to once again thank you, uh, Nancy, for for joining us and for talking about your book. The uh, information is definitely very much needed, especially in our modern culture. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, again, I'd like to thank you out there in podcast land for for listening in, those of you who listen live and those of you who also uh, listen to the recorded version afterward. Hopefully, all of you out there have found the information here enlightening and, and useful. And uh, again, I'd like to thank you, uh, Nathan, for, for joining me as well. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, so if you appreciated the interview here today, we just ask you to share it around your social media. You can rate and review us on Facebook and on iTunes. And now this is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift, or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name on the notes section so that Live Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account, and donations are also tax-deductible. Now, next week, 
uh, or I guess this this coming week on Sunday, we, we've managed to resume our weekly posting schedule for our podcast. And so, so we have two episodes up there that are new that you should definitely check out, talking about uh, bodily rights and Judith Jarvis Thompson's famous essay. And this coming Sunday, we're actually going to be talking about the burning IVF lab thought experiment, which was recently raised again by, by a comedian slash science fiction author on Twitter. So we're going to be talking about that this Sunday. So once again, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.